following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 4 today, verses 21 through 31. So let me catch everyone up in case you, know, you haven't been in all of the, the sermons for this series or you're just jumping in with us. The book of Galatians, the, the, the conflict basically is set up like this. Paul went through the area of Galatia, planted a church, preached the true gospel, uh, planted churches probably. And then after he left, a religious group known as the Judaizers came behind him and began to teach Uh, on top of his teaching, right? So he taught them that if they trust in Jesus, they can be saved. They came and said, well, yeah, that's good, but you also need to observe at least parts of the Old Testament law, okay? And so you're not gonna be saved, you're not gonna be close to God without also observing the law, okay? And so, so then word gets back to Paul that not only are these guys coming and preaching this mess, but that the Galatians are actually beginning to believe it. And so the, the book of Galatians is Paul's heartfelt response to these people that he loves about this heresy that they're beginning to believe. Uh, it's, it's not a minor thing. It's, it's a life and death thing. It's an eternal life thing. And uh, so Paul uses strong language throughout this. Paul is, he's in a father mode uh, for a big part of the book. And uh, we, we saw some of that even last week as he used that language of, of us being connected as heirs and sons to God. We get to come to him as Abba, Father. But there's going to be a turn here as Paul now is going to maybe head more of a maternal direction as he pleads with his friends who he had brought the gospel to, uh, to turn away from this error. So let's, uh, let's read together Galatians 4 verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Praise God for his word. That's about as clear as mud, isn't it? This is probably the hardest section of Galatians to understand, and that's pretty universally understood. So we've got uh, some some work to do today, And, and it's once we dig into it, you'll find that it's, it's, it seems hard to understand. It really is fairly simple and a continuation in a different way of what he's already been saying, largely. There's some additional points here that, that are driven home in maybe a more forceful way. But um, before I impact that, I just, 
I want to say this. I, I don't know why, even as I was reading that, just it, I was reminded of all the folks that I'm aware of this week. I know of at least three families. Um, the, the Omicron's still rolling around doing its thing. I know three families that aren't here because they're dealing with that, and there's probably more. Um, I just want to make sure everyone understands our position here as far as what people are doing in terms of gathering, okay? Because I know there could be this feeling of like, maybe folks, uh, maybe there's pressure from us to, to be here. And I just want everyone to understand, we, we believe you are spirit-led children of God, okay? We know that there's a whole wide set of variables that would determine whether somebody right now is using the live stream or is coming in person. And I, just, I want everyone to understand that and, and, and know, man, there, there isn't any pressure from us, okay? We, this, this whole book is about getting out of legalism, okay? All right, so that's, amen, right? So that's, and that's not to say that gathering with God's people in a, in a regular way is not important, it absolutely is, but these are unique circumstances, okay? I just don't want anybody, I don't want the devil to get anybody in condemnation, man, over, over that, all right? Because that's not how we're thinking about it. And, and you shouldn't be either, right? So if you're like, if you're one of the ones, you know, like I've always been, if, if, the, doors, if the doors of the church building are open, I'm there, right? If you're, you're one of the diehards, right? Let's make sure we don't get an attitude of false superiority like these Judaizers did, okay? You know, everybody's walking through this thing and doing their best, and it's hard. It's just been, it's wacky, okay? And uh, we love everybody, and we're thankful for everyone uh, staying connected however they can as, as we're navigating this. Okay? Is that all right? Amen. Now, let's unpack these scriptures. I don't know. I, the Holy Ghost was bothering me about it. Okay. Verses 20, 20, you know, we're doing verse by verse through Galatians. So let's go back. 21 through 24. Uh, let, let's look at that again. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. All right, so the first thing we need to acknowledge here is, is Paul's use of the phrase allegorically speaking, okay? Because this has caused much skerfuffle, uh, you may not be aware of, but this, you know, there's, there's kind of an ongoing debate among some about how we come to the scriptures as a whole. Are, are the scriptures to be taken literally? Are they to be taken allegorically? And, and here's the, the reality. Uh, yes, sometimes, depends, right? Because there's poetry in the scripture. There's, there's parts of the scripture that are meant to be taken as metaphor that's written as metaphor, i.e. what Paul's doing right now, okay? But there's also big chunks of it that are written as history. Like this is stuff that really happened. And so there, there's this tendency to kind of go one way or the other. It takes a lot of the sermon and the help of the Holy Spirit as we navigate our Bibles to, to ask the question, what, what was the meaning, original meaning of the writing of this? Was it meant to be taken as a metaphor? Was it meant to be taken as uh, literal history? And, and sometimes it's hard to tell, okay, just to be totally honest. But um, you can't junk drawer it. You can't broad brush it. You, you know, there, there are those that would criticize people, I, I'm hoping like us, who think big parts of the Bible should be taken literally. They'd say, ah, oh, it's, all, it's all allegory, it's all metaphor, you're kind of a fool to do that. That's, that's too far. Um, but also not acknowledging that there are parts of the scripture that were written to be understood metaphorically uh, would be a problem as well. So anyways, that's, we just need to know that, and, and what we need to understand here is 
Paul saying, I'm speaking allegorically about this right now. What that doesn't mean for sure is that Paul thinks the story of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac is an allegory. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm, looking at, I, I'm trying to make a point here. I've been making a continuing point through this letter and I've used different metaphors and now I'm going to reach to this story and I'm going to use it as an example to continue to reinforce these principles that I'm trying to give you, okay? That's what he's saying, all right? And, and we want to know that it's important for us to know that this was done. We believe Paul wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so that doesn't mean we can do this kind of willy-nilly ourselves. What do I mean by that? <laughs> okay. Yes, there are often deeper levels of spiritual significance to things like history recorded in the Old Testament, but we have to be careful not to insert meaning into those stories that is not congruent with the overall purpose and themes of God's word, all right? And you might be thinking, dude, what are you talking about? I've, here, I got an example. Maybe this will help you understand what I mean, okay? Um, it, I don't have time to give you the whole story of, of the book of Esther, but, but basically God's people are in trouble. Somebody's hatching a plan to try to get them all killed. This girl is in the king's palace and, and she goes before the king and is able to basically expose that um, plot and, and the people are saved. So that's like the so Cliff Notes version, all right? But I don't, I don't have time to preach Esther while I'm trying to preach this. So, but somebody could take the story of Esther and, and I've, I've heard things like this before, okay? They could, they could look at what happens in that story and they could come away with something like, well, you, you just have to go get what you want, bless God, right? They, they could, here's what I think Esther's teaching. Just go get what you want, bless God. It, no matter who tells you, you can't. You just got to push past all the barriers in your life. You got to dress for success, right? Go chase your dreams and never take no for an answer. Just like Esther. That would be a problematic metaphorical use of the book of Esther. That's not what the point is, okay? Why? How do you know? Well, it would be a misapplication because the actual point of the story being recorded in the scriptures, Esther wasn't going for her goals or chasing her dreams. She was selflessly putting her life on the line to save the lives of her people. That's what was happening there. This wasn't about Esther achieving her full potential and reaching for the stars and not letting anybody tell her no or any other goofiness. But do you see how you could do that? And there's some that have looked at what Paul did here in, in making his point, and they think, oh, okay, well, now I have a license to go and kind of read whatever meaning I want into the scriptures. No. No. Okay? Amen. Uh, and and, and it, it's even more important that we understand that's the, that that's the point of Esther, because in doing that, in putting her life on the line so that her people could be saved from destruction, she's actually pointing forward to Jesus who would do the same, except he would have to go even farther and actually give his life to save his people, which ties in and is congruent with the overall narrative and theme of the scriptures. Amen. Okay. All right. That's important. Three of you acted like you knew it was important. I'm hoping the rest of you are just thinking a lot. Okay. I know it's a lot to digest. So, so here's the question, all right? If there's a danger of doing that, is, is Paul in the pocket here? Is there a reason for us to be confident, aside from our belief that these 
are inspired scriptures of God, which should be enough, but let's, let's push a little farther. Is, is Paul in the pocket here in the use of this metaphor? I, I, I want to contend that he absolutely is because he's continuing to make the case for the superiority of the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone over the false gospel of salvation by works plus God's grace or works that earns God's grace. Okay, that's so. And, and so is him reaching to this and, and seeing the, the, a metaphor of this point in the story of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. Is he, is he stretching here? That's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm asking us. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think he is. And, and as we unpack this, I think that'll be more clear. Uh, the, the, the difference between what was being said here, it may seem subtle, but its importance can't be overstated, okay? And I've said this already in this series, um, and, and there is a lot of repetition in this as we're working through the book of Galatians because, man, the focus of the letter is, is there's, there's other things discussed kind of in the periphery, but there is a major point to this letter, okay? There's one gospel, and any other variation of it leads to death, Okay? That's, that's the big point. So we're gonna, we're, we are going to keep staying in that lane, and I feel great about it, and I hope you do too. Um, the Judaizers were preaching, believe, obey, and as a result, be saved. Paul preached, believe, be saved, and as a result, obey. And that slight inversion, all the same words are in there. But just flipping that a little bit, man, it changes everything. That order makes all the difference. This, this piece of history, the story of Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, it, it, he points to it to illustrate the difference between trying to do things by our power versus trusting in God's power. The example is specifically around trying to bring in and, and have this child of promise for a lineage for Abraham. But the point he's making is that that principle, it translates into this discussion around how we relate to God, how we go from spiritual death to spiritual life, how it is we know or not if we can spend eternity with God. It's, it's either grace or it's works. It can't be both. And, and what, what does that mean? In, in, case, <clears throat> in case you're not familiar with the story, it kind of starts in Genesis 16. You know, God has promised a descendant Abraham, many descendants actually, okay? But there's a problem. Um, Abraham and Sarah have none, right? So Abraham, God's telling Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you and, and through your seed, all, all the nations of the world are gonna be blessed. Abraham's like, that, God, that's awesome. Just one thing. I, I have no kids, <laughs> right? So, and God, you know, that's, I got it, man. But, and, then, and then there's big time left in between. You know, between the original promise and, and Isaac coming in, it was like 25 years. So in between, Abraham and Sarah, as they continue to age, right? And they're in their, they're in their 70s when this first pro, the promise comes at first, and it's already seeming kind of wild. You know, and then, but more time is passing. It's seeming less and less likely, based on what they understand about biology, that there's going to be a baby out of this thing. So Sarah comes up with an idea. In that time, it, it was a, a legal and accepted practice she had a, a servant that she was able to give that servant to Abraham to marry and to try to conceive through, right? And you might say, oh my gosh, I hate that. Like, so do I. It's, it's not 
anything that I'm trying to recreate now, but we got to remember it's like small little nomadic tribes out in the middle of nowhere trying to like promulgate, you know what I mean? And, and survive. So things were a little bit different and uh, doesn't, doesn't excuse it. It was still out of God's will, clearly, if you know how the story unfolds. So, so Hagar does become pregnant, gives birth to Ishmael, okay? Ishmael is a product of biology. Even though Abraham's old, uh, <clears throat> obviously, you know, the biological way the babies happen still worked. You guys with me? Um, but that wasn't what God meant, God told him he was going to give him a son, a descendant, from Sarah. And so that, that, is, that is the problem, and that's, and that's why he reaches for this metaphor, because it's, it's a great example of God seeming to promise something that's like, it's, it's hard to conceive of how it's possible, and us saying, oh, I can help. I'm going to get in here and do, I'm going to get in here and, do something, God, because times are ticking away here. And, and having, having a son, having a descendant in your old age, that's, that's wild. But man, if you really understand what it means for someone to go from darkness to light, from death to life, to be saved, man, that's, that's even harder to understand how that could be accomplished. We're talking about resurrection, man. We're talking about being born again. Being, being born the first time is a wild, cool thing that God has done. But man, being born the second time, that's the miracle of miracles. And, it, and we are perennially tempted to do within that situation, our understanding, our, that, that emptiness, that, that gnawing that, that comes from being disconnected from God. We, we often do what Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar and Ishmael. And that's what he's saying, the Judaizers are doing. It's like, man, salvation, by, hold on, by grace alone, that doesn't even make sense. How is it? And I get it, they're right at one level. It's, it's a scandalous, difficult thing to grasp that we can commit cosmic treason against God and that he will do all the work necessary for us to be saved and simply say, trust me. You know, it does, it, it's like, Get a little twitch just trying to c- contemplate that. And, and for some of us, let's, let's be really honest, we've heard that so much, we, we get used to it, right? It's, it, doesn't, it should always make you twitch a little bit and then lead you to gratitude, <laughs> right? And lead you to worship. It is amazing. So amazing that in this time and up through today, we, we will always have this battle going on, this temptation to move away from the pure gospel of grace and, and try to help with our Ishmaels. That will, we will always have that temptation. Well, I don't. I'm, I'm, I've got it all figured out. Oh, friend, keep listening. Let's keep working on it. <laughs> you sweet soul. This is the main point of this passage. And it's, it's, I already told you, it's not a very different point than he's already been making. This is just another way to make it. And I'm, like I told you, I don't... Paul, I don't think Paul's out on a limb here. He's not stretching by going back into the Hebrew scriptures to try and illustrate this new covenant reality that was ushered in through the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, I'm proposing to you that the resounding answer to whether Paul is out on a limb here or stretching too far or trying to make something out of nothing, I think that resounding answer to that question is is no 
And why am I saying that? Because what I, I want to propose this to you. He reached for the story of, of Ishmael and Isaac, of Sarah and Hagar, Abraham and all of that. But when I'm, when I'm trying to, I want to try to show you quickly-ish, is that he could have turned just about anywhere in the Old Testament narrative to show that, to show us that we have always been dependent on God's grace and power, that it's always been about us being dependent on God's grace and power. What do I mean by that? And, and, here's, and part of the problem is we often misunderstand the, the Old Testament narrative. I, I think Paul was exactly right to reach where he reached, but I think he could have reached for a lot more. Here's what I'm saying. Let's think of Noah. How was, how was Noah rescued? Was it because he was such a great guy? You may have, you may have heard that. He was a, a preacher of righteousness. Well, he was that, but he was still a sinner because Noah got off the boat, got drunk, and got naked. Did you read that part? Noah was not perfect, okay? It was by the grace of God that Noah was warned of an impending flood. It was by the grace of God Noah had the strength to build the boat for 75 to 100 years or whatever it was. It, it wasn't all Noah's power. That was God's power. Abraham, we're very familiar with this because Paul has locked into Abraham in the book of Galatians, but it was by grace that God called Abraham to trust him, to leave the place of his lineage. And, and then it was by grace that God gave him Isaac, the child of promise. It was by God's power that Isaac was born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. It's the only way that happens. And that was the point. That was the point. And in case we didn't get it with Sarah, None of the patri- all of the patriarch's wives struggled with fertility. I, Rebecca, okay, so who's the child of promise? Isaac, he marries who? Rebecca. Also struggled with fertility, needed God's grace and power for Jacob and Esau to be born by grace. Jacob then marries a girl named Rachel. Guess what? Also barren. It's only by God's grace and power that Joseph is born. And then Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, is sent into Egypt you guys know that whole story. And it was, it was by, their family ends up being saved by God's grace and favor upon Joseph in Egypt. It wasn't because Joseph was great. It was because God gave him a supernatural ability to interpret dreams so that this guy that was this foreigner in the Pharaoh's jail gets brought into the Pharaoh's court and is, ends up with the Pharaoh's signet ring on, given orders. That's the grace of God. That's the favor of God at work. And it was because of that that Joseph was in a position to save his little nomad family and bring them into Egypt from the famine. You understand? It was all God's grace. And then when the pharaohs kind of forgot about the fact that they made it because of Joseph and enslaved the people, they were delivered by God's grace. God sends Moses, but it's by his power that 10 plagues come in succession to break down the Pharaoh to the point, the the crescendo of that being the death of the firstborn. And in that, there being an incredible picture forward-looking of the gospel where they take the blood of lambs and put it over their doorpost so that that death angel passes over their home. It's by God's grace that they, it wasn't, do you understand? This is, look, if salvation was by works, here's how the story would have went. And The Hebrews finally got mad enough and realized there was more of them than the Egyptians, and they all took their hammers and chisels and stonemason tools, stood up, and slaughtered the Egyptians. That's how it would go. Is that what happened? No. 
God showed up and did miracles. God showed up in the might of his power that they were sent out. And then when Pharaoh and his deranged self changed his mind, God miraculously parts a Red Sea. Just in case anybody thought this, that God wasn't involved in this, let's make sure everyone knows this narrative depends on the grace and power of God alone because a sea split in half. In case you could have chalked the rest up to weather and, you know, the, the, the frogs and the locusts and the gnats and all the rest and the hail is like, well, you know, that could have all happened naturally. Seas don't split naturally and close up exactly at the right time to wipe out the army trying to kill you. God's grace, God's power. And then the people of Israel don't survive in the wilderness by their own strength by their own survival skills, do they? No, but by the gracious provision of God because water flows out of the rock of Horeb and manna lands on the ground every day for them to eat. Again, the message being dependence on God's grace, dependence on God's power. Oh, it's always been there. They don't survive the mission to spy out the promised land by their own strength, but by God's providential grace, they run into Rahab who hides them. They'd have been dead. But God organizes something else. Joshua and the rest don't move into the promised land by their own strength. Do the the children of Israel run in and and use their Bronze Age weapons to knock down the walls of Jericho? Is that how that goes? The first fortified city they run into is they're trying to come in and inhabit the land? How does the walls of Jericho go down? By the power of God, by the grace of God. Gideon didn't defeat the Amalekites by many men or their might, but he did it with 300. Why? By the grace of God, to show the power of God, to show our dependence on God that this was going to always be about what he can do, not what we can do. Ruth didn't join the family of Israel by her cunning or beauty. It was the grace of God shown to her through Boaz. And Boaz only had the blessing of a family because of the grace of God shown to him through Ruth. God orchestrated all that was necessary for Ruth to, here's the words you'll find in that book, just so happened to end up in the field of Boaz. Mm-hmm. The children of Israel didn't defeat the Philistine giant by their own strength and power, but God empowered a shepherd boy named David, and he delivered them by his grace, showing them again. It was going to be his power. It was going to be his grace. It was always going to be him. It was going to be God sending the deliverer. Elijah didn't defeat the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel by his own power. It was by the power of God alone. Nehemiah couldn't have returned to build the walls of Jerusalem without God's favor being shown to him through the Persian king Darius. It didn't go like that. It's not normal for a king who's, who's ruling over exiles to have such favor on a guy. He's like, yeah, he, here's all the notes you need to not only travel safely to go back and build the walls of your city, but also here's, here's some stuff to make sure you got the materials. That's grace, that's favor, that wasn't Nehemiah. That was God doing what he did. Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego would never have survived the fiery furnace without the gracious protection of God. They weren't superheroes. God protected them, and the same goes for Daniel in the lion's den. Why am I doing this? Did you forget already? I'm trying to tell you, Paul could have flipped into the Hebrew scriptures just about anywhere. He could have thrown a dart in there and found the principle that it's by God's grace and power and it always has been. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, what I throw? Don't be scared, it's just a card. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, When our first parents tried to deal with the problem of sin on their own 
by covering themselves with fig leaves and hiding, God sacrificed an animal to cover them with skins and to give us one of the first pictures of how our only hope always was and always will be his grace. Always was and always will be. And every time we get so foolish as to think, we can help. (laughs) Come on. Verses 25 through 27, let's look at those again. Did I lose my place? I might have. Oh yeah, I'm in Nehemiah now. How did that happen? I wove my Bible in the airs. That's funny, I was talking about Nehemiah. Don't over-spiritualize that. Okay, here we go. Where am I? What's, what scriptures are we even looking at? 25 through 27, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a miracle. Uh, no, it's not. Now, now, this is Hagar in Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Uh, verse 27, is a, it's, a, uh, it's a quote from Isaiah 54, I believe. So, what, what is all that? This, I get it, man. This is kind of confusing. So let's work on it. The reference to Mount Sinai is because that is where the law was given to Moses. And remember, the big conflict here is around, do we need Jesus plus the law to be saved? Or is it, is it just Jesus? Is it just grace through faith? Okay. And, and so that's what the reference to Mount Sinai is. That's where the law came. And, he's, and Jerusalem was the center of worship for those who were still living under it. That's why he's saying allegorically here, Hagar corresponds to Mount Sinai, giving of the law, and Jerusalem, where most of the people who are still under the belief that that law is what's going to save them are doing their thing. That was the center of worship, okay? When when he talks about the Jerusalem above that is our mother, it's, it's a reference to our heavenly citizenship. And I realize that's kind of weird language, but on another, it's not really if we think about this. Have any of you ever heard the phrase mother country? You've heard that before probably. If you haven't, it's fairly common. What does that mean? There's actually a definition for it. It's not just a colloquialism. The definition is that it's the country of one's birth or ancestry. That's your mother country, okay? So what he's doing here is he's reminding the Galatians that though they were born naturally when it comes to relationship With God, Jesus taught we must be born again. They had been born naturally, but Jesus taught you've got to be born again. If you want to come to God, you're going to have to be born again. So ancestry, citizenship, it it, it changes. Jesus taught that. that, And here's what's in that. Why born again? That's such drastic language. That's why when when Jesus said it to Nicodemus, he's like, what? (laughs) are we talking about people going back in and coming out? Like, how does that work, right? It, it is, it's confusing, but it's, it's a metaphor to help us understand the radical nature. This is not, what does it mean? It means the transition from pride and self-reliance to humility and full surrender is so radical. It's like being born a second time. God doesn't just want us to change some behaviors or add some new features. He makes us completely brand new creatures. And he is forming us into the very image of Christ himself. 
This, this thing is a miracle. It's so big, it's so radical, it's so hard to comprehend. How could we ever think that we could contribute? It's a miracle in the truest sense of the word. And that's what he means. This heavenly Jerusalem is there. In, in Revelation 21, and I'm not gonna, I, 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 can't read, I can't read it out loud without crying, so I'm not going there right now because right, that's not what I, I got more I need to tell you. So I can't get all emotional right now. But in Revelation 21, it talks about John in his vision seeing the new Jerusalem descending and as, as a bride adorned for her husband. The city is not the bride. We are the bride. There's actually some deep stuff in here. That I, I, and I'm not even sure. I read every commentator I could possibly find. There's not congruence around it. But I think there's something to even this idea of this, this new Jerusalem and, and who our mother is, right? Because it's interesting. Paul, the flow of thought, Paul First part of, of Galatians 4, he's talking about God as our Abba Father. And then he, then he uses this language of how he's, he's got these, he, he's kind of travailing like in childbirth over these Galatians. So, and, and, and for those of you, let me say this. For those of you who are all, like ticked off about, let, as we go through last week, right? It's, it's talking about um, us being children of God. It'll, it'll use the word, uh, it'll use sons. And it doesn't always say like sons and daughters. You're like, you know, you, you might be like hands on your hips about that. Like, well, why doesn't it say sons and daughters? Well, hold on. Because the Bible, it, it, it pushes us to understand these things at a, at a deeper level, right? Because why does it talk about sons? Because in, in the culture and the time that it was talking about, it was talking about the, all of the, the rights that come with being an heir, and that went to the sons there. That's what he was talking about. But then Paul will also flip over here and start talking about, like, he's a mama that, that's going through childbirth as he's trying to get people to understand the gospel, right? So... It pushes, so on one hand, the ladies are pushed to think of themselves as sons in relation to God in, in that particular way. But look, man, the guys are getting pushed to think about how we need to have a motherly love for people as we're trying to share the gospel with them. And I'm in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Glory! It's good for me to humble myself and think of myself as a bride <laughs> to Christ. I'm not going to get weird with that. I'm just saying. There's, it, 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 it ebbs and flows, okay? It about equals out. You really go through and look at it, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. Hallelujah. Okay. <clears throat> Verses 28 through 31. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, but at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. The son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Here's part of what it talks about. He's talking about this, this persecution that happened. If you go back and you read the story... Uh, Ishmael began to mock Isaac around the time that he was being weaned from his mother. And this was a significant point and celebrated in, in that culture. So there's kind of, there's kind of a, a party around that. There's a, there's a celebrating the milestone of the child being weaned roughly age of three, probably. Um, and, and what that shows us is there's this tension and contention between the son born of the flesh and the son born of the promise. It, it becomes apparent. It wasn't there, the, the, the tension that was going to be there wasn't so apparent before Isaac was born, before the child of promise was born. 
But once he's there, it becomes pretty clear this reality that they were not going to be able to dwell together in peace. The one born of the flesh and the one born of the spirit. I got one mm mm-hmm over here. Do Do I need to unpack that? Do you understand what I'm saying? You following the allegory? He did really good. Paul did really good here. Thank you, Paul. Paul's analogy hits the nail on the head again because this was the very thing the Judaizers were trying to convince the Galatians was possible. That you could make reliance on your performance, reliance on your ability to keep the law, and reliance on the grace that comes through trusting in Jesus. You can make those two coexist together. And that's what he's saying. Allegorically, we saw the child of the, the one born of the flesh and one born of the promise. They, they couldn't dwell together in the same house. And Paul's saying, dependence upon God's grace and dependence on your good works, they, they can't live together in the same house. It's not going to work. One's got to go. You can't do it, friends. This is an either or situation. You are relying on your works or Christ's works, period. You are either believing you can be good enough on your own to stand righteous and blameless before a holy God, or you are believing that Jesus was the only one who ever could. It's either our works or his works. We will be judged one day based on one or the other. It is the height of insolence and foolishness to think we can stand before God on our own merit, either fully or partially. And this kind of pride, listen to me, is the greatest sin any person can commit. And is the only one that can keep us from receiving the grace and salvation that we have been offered in Jesus. It's the only one. This right here, this idea, friends, is why it is a grave mistake to think all religions are basically the same. And sometimes you'll hear people say that. They really believe that. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from works, is both the most precious and unique facet of our faith. As followers of Jesus, we stand alone among the world's religions by believing, first of all, that we need salvation and that it is a gift of grace alone. And this is the linchpin. This is, Paul wrote an entire book to combat the idea that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you can include your own works or your dependence on your observance of the law at all. So it's not like this is some, this is some minor thing that I'm making into a major. This is the major. It's the gospel. It's the point. It's what all of the Old Testament scriptures was, was leading us up to. It's, it's what we see in the life and teachings, death and resurrection of Christ. It's what we're encouraged to live in light of as the rest of the New Testament unpacks. And we read letters like this. We stand alone when it comes to that. There, there are those that would say, well, is, I mean, Islam's still looking back towards the, an Abrahamic descendancy, right? So ultimately, we're still, we're still talking about the same God. We're still talking about the same Thing here, right? Friends, in 632 AD, there's something to be said for that timing, but I don't have time to get into that. Muhammad delivered his last sermon. 
You guys understand Muhammad is the, the prophet of Islam, right? There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the kind of baseline big deal when it comes to Islam, okay? This is his last sermon. It was rather short, easy to find on the internet. Uh, it was, it's rather short and, and I pulled two quotes in this few paragraphs, last sermon of Muhammad. Listen to this. Remember that you will indeed meet your Lord and that, will he, that he will indeed reckon your deeds. Remember, one day you will appear before God and answer for your deeds. So beware, do not stray from the path of righteousness after I am gone. These are the, this was the, in the last sermon Muhammad preached, okay? It's not just Islam. You know what the last words of Buddha were? Behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Some translations of that ancient text will, instead of salvation, will say deliverance. Okay? Here's my question to you. Can I get one brave soul in here to tell me the last three words that Jesus spoke on the cross? It is finished. This is something totally different. It is finished. And so is this sermon. Pray with me. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you. I thank you for Paul's boldness motivated by love for these people. God, I thank you that we get to read this instruction. He's, he's writing to a people he knew. He's writing to a church that he birthed through the, the, the difficult process of preaching the true gospel to them and teaching them what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And as word comes back to this pastor, that the people that he loved and poured the gospel into were being led astray into this heresy, into these lies. Lord, his, his heart is vexed and and we see that come through. There's emotion here. The, the, the reality, the, the tension, the, the difficulty, the, the strain of the thing, it comes through. The, the degree of importance. It, Lord, we, we, feel, we don't just read it and, and, and see it in an academic way. We can feel it. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for that. We, we need to feel it. Not just so that we ourselves are warned from straying into works-based seeking of, of relationship and righteousness, but Lord God, so that we can, we can stand bold as we try to in love share that truth with others. Lord, help us. Please help us. We, we want to humbly admit that none of us has escaped the tendency to waffle back and forth to, to come up with our own Ishmael plans. We do it, Lord. We do it all the time. But we don't want to. As, as we sit under the preaching of your word, as your Holy Spirit deals with us now, as we, as we think and we see with clarity, God, we want to ask for your help to do that less and less, to trust you, to wait upon you for all of our hope to be in you alone. It, it always has been. That's how it really works and it's how it always has. You've made it abundantly clear. But God, we also are just so good at missing the point. We ask you to forgive us for that. Help us. Help us to 
walk forward with clear eyes, hearts full with passion and boldness and love for you in response to how well you've loved us. May all of this be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.